The presidential motorcade had just passed through heavy crowds in downtown Dallas and was circling through the fringes of the business district when three shots suddenly rang out. Destroying the media lies and dismantling the narratives. One story at a time. It's the Adrian Slate Show. Headline, Washington Examiner, over 75 counties in the Commonwealth of Virginia have so far adopted such Second Amendment sanctuary resolutions. Virginia Democrats say they may have to call in the National Guard to enforce the law. I'm Adrian Slade. Quick programming note, this will be the final podcast for the 2019 year. We're going to take a couple weeks off. We've got some vacation coming up. And we will be back with you in 2020. So Adrian Slade is going to be back. The show uh, today will be the last show of the year. So just in case you're wondering why new content isn't being put out, that's the reason. So Governor Northam, Blackface Northam, yeah, he and the Democrats, they, they're pushing through gun control measures this is actually from the, uh, the Epic Times. Democrats' election win in Virginia yields gun restriction or registration proposal. Virginia Democrats are proposing a mandatory state gun registration measure after widespread public outrage for- forced them to back off a more aggressive plan to confiscate so-called assault weapons, a designation that gun experts have long rejected as arbitrary. Gun control advocates calling modern sporting rifles, such as popular AR-15 assault weapons, uh, that's what they call them, liking them to weapons of war. But Governor Ralph Northam's bill still calls for a ban on assault weapons, albeit with a grandfather clause allowing those who already own such weapons to keep them. Northam's spokeswoman Elena Yarmosky said in a statement, the grandfather clause will apply only if the gun owners register their weapons with the government before the end of the designated grace period, Yarmosky said. Northam issued what Cam Edwards of the pro-Second Amendment website Bearing Arms characterized as a veiled threat to use force against political subdivisions of the state that refuse to comply with the new laws. Quote, if we have a constitutional law on the books and law enforcement officers are not enforcing those laws on the books, then there are going to be consequences. But I'll cross that bridge if and when we get to it, Northam said. So he's passing very restrictive anti-Second Amendment legislation. You know, we're going to be able to sit here and allow illegals, people that aren't even citizens of the United States, hang out in certain cities. But then if we decide we're not going to enforce gun confiscation, registries that will allow uh, you know, anti-gun individuals in the political levels to monitor and to have a list of people that they could potentially use down the line. Um, why are we going to outlaw states that want to uphold the Second Amendment or cities and localities as sanctuary localities for the Second Amendment? That's a constitutional amendment. Shall not be infringed. The states should be able to, you know, make their own laws under the Constitution to a degree. But there are natural rights that are on a federal level that are to the individual. 
that protects any level of government from overstepping those bounds. Second Amendment being one. Why are we allowing them to take on illegal immigration with such cavalier, you know, laissez-faire attitudes, but yet those of us that have done nothing wrong, that may own a weapon, that live in a locality, you're going to now threaten the National Guard to confiscate all this? This is unbelievable. And, you know, it wasn't that long ago that Virginia was Republican-run. We had a Republican governor under Bob McConnell. Bob McDonnell was not that far off. I mean, not only that, we had a state legislature that was Republican-held not that long ago. Now, redistricting messed that all up. And then the expansion of the government, the federal bureaucracy under Barack Obama is what caused the takeover of Virginia. It's why I asked the question down there in Texas. Is there some sort of financial compensation being given to those who are coming from California to set up shop specifically in Texas? They might go to Arizona, but for the most part, they're all going to Texas for the most part. The majority of them. Now, those people that are naysayers and and are looking too far or may think that we're looking too far into it with that assertion, they're going to say, well, they'll get the lower taxes, lower cost of living. Yeah, I get that. But why Texas and why the same localities? Because they're trying to flip it. And it's the same thing in Northern Virginia. In Northern Virginia, because of the spillover of the government, the federal bureaucracy, all of those government employees, the swamp, the Democrat bureau- uh, bureaucrats, they all live up there in Northern Virginia. Some of them, we stayed at a bed and breakfast in Luray, which is about an hour and 10 minutes away from, the, from D.C. Federal employees live there, too, because they, it, they have to live somewhere and they will commute an hour and 15 minutes in. So that, that drove all these individuals up into the state uh, or up into the state of Virginia, into Northern Virginia, most you know notably, and it caused us to turn it from a red state to a purple state to now a blue state. And now, you know, the Republicans in, in Virginia weren't that bad. They they got things done. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to minimize what they did. It's not like the Cong- uh, Republican Congress on the federal level. But the Democrats, as soon as they took over, they look at it as some mandate. Take a look at the map of Virginia. If we had a electoral college type system in the state that would change everything we wouldn't be sitting in the situation that we're in but unfortunately we don't and northern virginia loudon county fairfax even central virginia richmond they decide the entire makeup of the politics of the state so now we're dealing with gun control and the possibility of confiscation via uh, via National Guard. Now, in Culpeper, this is interesting here. This is the reaction. The Sheriff's Department in Culpeper, this is what they said. Every sheriff and Commonwealth's attorney in Virginia will see the consequences if our General Assembly passes further unnecessary gun registrations. Red flag laws without due process will create enormous conflict as well. America has more guns than citizens and murder has long been illegal. At best, the best the proposed gun re- uh, restrictions will disarm or handicap our law-abiding in their defense and possibly cause a criminal 
to choose another tool of evil. I'd like to thank our board of supervisors for their resolution to support uh, the resolution of support of our citizens' natural right to self-defense as protected by the Constitution. My office will always encourage and support our citizens in firearms training, concealed carry permits, and the ability to defend themselves and their families. I remain very optimistic that our General Assembly will not pass the proposed bills. Obviously, if passed, there are many of us willing to challenge these laws through the courts. In addition, if necessary, I plan to properly screen and deputize thousands of our law-abiding citizens to protect their constitutional rights to own firearms. Sheriff Scott Jenkins, and he follows it up with, quote, a militia, when properly formed, are in fact the people themselves and include all men capable of bearing arms, end quote. 1788, Richard Henry Lee. So he's going to deputize the citizenry as a buffer against what the state government is looking to do here in the communist wealth of Virginia. That's interesting. And if you think about it, the sheriffs can act they're elected by the citizenry, and they are not under the tutelage of our governor. So they can propose, hey, I'm not going not to follow through with uh, enforcing this. And that would not be an issue. And especially when he can back it up with the Second Amendment. I mean, you should be able to get an ACLJ or some sort of uh, legal team to support you in this. So keep an eye on what's going on here in my state, unfortunately. And I live in, on family land. We aren't going anywhere. So it's easy for people to say, well, elections have consequences. Well, our localities voted Republican. It was only Northern Virginia that screwed us. Then people will say, well, you know, you can always move. Well, not really. Not in this situation. So we need to find a way to politically take back the power. Hopefully, down the road, minimization of the federal bureaucracy will help make that happen. It is amazing how Virginia is the battleground for what is happening on a federal level. The divide of America, the fact that the left wants to impose its will upon the citizens, not in, so, in, not in such a way that they even consider what the other side really wants. You think about it, this has gone on for quite some time that that's what a generation knows. That is why they melted down when Donald Trump won. It wasn't because it was specifically Donald Trump, because many of them were watching him on The Apprentice and The Celebrity Apprentice. But it was because a Republican won. And all they've ever known, they probably caught the tail end of George W. Bush, but weren't really cognitive enough to understand what was happening, but did see the media bashing him on a daily basis, not to the level that Trump is getting. This is unprecedented. But it was still fairly, fairly harsh. And so during that time period, Obama gets in office. We get a majority in Congress. And then what happens? They shove everything through. Obamacare gets pushed through to the point that the Tea Party is formed and rises up because the GOP wasn't doing anything. So now we're at a position to where they want to do that again by removing the Electoral College, like Elizabeth Warren says, so that they can run off a popular vote. And then if they get into office, they'll just will upon us everything that they want to do. 
You know, like, look what's happening to Vox, V-O-X, the magazine, the, uh, the news outlet. Well, not really news. The leftist Marxist outlet. Yeah, they passed this bill in California because they're going to stick it to the, the mean old corporations who aren't paying their fair share and they're hiring people and taking advantage of them. So they basically passed this measure to require businesses who bring on people on a freelance basis, they, they now have to treat them as employees and pay them full-time wages and benefits and what have you. And what happens? Vox Magazine or Vox whatever, because again, they're, they're not news, they're propaganda. They have to lay off half of their staff. All the freelancers that they were depending on, gone. All those people are out of work. And they had the Che Guevara shirts on and they were talking about the mean old corporations and how something has to be done. Well, guess what? They're all out of work by their own design. But that was willed upon them because California is like Virginia. And Virginia is, if they do what they want to do with the Electoral College, will be what it is for the entire country. Let's just will upon you uh, the removal of your Second Amendment rights. Oh, you don't like that? Well, guess what? We're going to put the National Guard on it. Now, they're backtracking from that. The National Guard of Virginia basically stated that they're not going to enforce anything and they're going to wait to see how things go. But the time to talk about it is now. You don't wait until it's already passed. You know, the time to talk about Obamacare was when we were talking about Obamacare. Then they shoved it through and guess what? Now it's never going away. So the time to talk is now. What's interesting, there's a lot of interesting stories that are floating around about what's happening in Virginia. One in particular, this is from uh, lawenforcementtoday.com. Um, it begins, Virginia forms active militia to protect sheriffs, citizens from unconstitutional laws. Earlier this week, we reported on how lawmakers over in Virginia were threatening to use the National Guard if members of local law enforcement refused to enforce laws passed in the state that they felt violated the Second Amendment. Looks like Tazewell County isn't going down without a fight. On top of calling themselves a Second Amendment sanctuary county, they're also crafting a militia as well. The Virginia County has taken the movement that has swept across the state and added an element that is sure to trigger pro-gun grabbing politicians in the state. Just this past Tuesday, on December 10th, the Board of Supervisors from Tazewell County passed two different resolutions in light of the controversy circling those who are pro-gun. The first resolution declared the county to be a Second Amendment sanctuary. This is not at all surprising to see as 76 out of the 95 counties, 9 out of 38 independent cities, and 13 towns have adopted the uh, sanctuary Second Amendment resolution. Let's get that out. <laughs> the second uh, item on the agenda was the proposition of establishing a militia in the county where both of the resolutions passed. The crowd cheered loudly in support of decisions. Also, the resolutions didn't exactly pass by small margins either. The votes were unanimous with more than 200 citizens standing by in support. The motion is uh, the motion of the creation of the militia had already succeeded in an unofficial way based on the results of a survey conducted earlier in the month by county officials. But board chairman Travis Hackworth said people have persisted to press for the district to declare itself 
a Second Amendment sanctuary. Hackworth went on to state that there were three attorneys on board on the Board of Supervisors. Many of the other declarations made from other counties in Virginia were closely checked by the three attorneys to ensure nothing important would be glossed over or left out. The two biggest factors in resolutions such as these can be boiled down to funding and prosecution. The resolutions in Tazewell County would remove funding from any law enforcement department that would infringe residents' rights to bear arms. So if the state wanted to combat the resolutions, they could deny the county funding in other areas other than law enforcement, or perhaps attempt to evict people or evict public officials from their held offices. Now, that's something that's been going around. This is actually, I don't know the validity to this, but this is what the Virginia governor reportedly orders as far as his plans, and this comes from a radio show, the um, WBCQ and KYAH. Um, Governor Northam reportedly orders plans to cut electricity, phones, internet for gun confiscations. So there's the heavy hand of government coming down upon you because they can get the public utilities that are contracted with the government to shut off. The governor of Virginia has allegedly ordered a small cadre of staffers to begin the process for determining how to cut off electricity, telephone, faxes, cell phones and data, as well as the Internet in areas where he plans to send Virginia National Guard troops to forcibly seize guns when the Democrat legislation convenes in January. The order was allegedly given to a very small and trusted group of staffers, some of whom, it turns out, do not agree at all with this idea. Now, I can't confirm that that's the case. But what I can tell you is that Virginia is trying to pass, pass heavy measures and they're looking at infringing public servant rights in the process. So I, I don't know what's going to happen around the first of the year because, you know, they're, they're passing measures that Virginia would introduce a bill that terminates the employment of any public safety officer who refuses to enforce gun control. I mean, to me, that's, that's, that's really serious because again, your right to self-defense is now, you know, it's, it's on the, on the brink of being squashed. And there's some other articles that are floating out there. I can't verify this stuff. I mean, there was one that said Virginia to outlaw Krav Maga, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, kickboxing, Tai Chi, firearms instruction, and self-defense under the proposed law SB 64. I haven't had a chance to read the law. I find that a bit heavy-handed. Could be taken out of context. Trying to scare people. You know, there's lots of fake news rolling around, but one has to wonder, you know, if they're going to make it almost a felonious act to go to a gun range. Why wouldn't somebody be afraid? Why wouldn't somebody think that the state of Virginia wouldn't be overstepping their bounds? What's interesting, though, is it's not having the effect that they want. The Free Beacon actually has an article that says, as Virginia Democrats threaten gun bans, sanctuary movement spreads. Virginia's Second Amendment sanctuary movement continued to see overflow crowds throughout the state, despite Governor Northam backtracking on confiscation and threatening consequences for sanctuary municipalities. And he has kind of backed off now. I think that earlier talk kind of shocked the area. 
Eight Virginia localities became sanctuary, uh, uh, Second Amendment sanctuary cities and localities, bringing the total to 93, including 75 of Virginia's 95 counties and 18 of its legally independent cities. The movement, which pushes local governments to declare that they won't enforce new gun laws they deem unconstitutional, has seen grassroots support from people of all kinds of backgrounds, ages, in both rural and urban Virginia. I can tell you right now, Virginia Beach Council was packed. People were camping out on the lawn. And a lot of veterans showed up. And what people don't realize, I've talked to a lot of veterans lately. Um, they're at the ready. And this isn't, hyper, this isn't hyperbole. This isn't fear-mongering. They have said when they go to their, you know, VFW halls and, or their meetings, they have said that, uh, yeah, we keep, we've got our weapons. We're trained. They're watching and monitoring what's happening with Antifa. They're monitoring what's happening with uh, things like the, the state Senate in Virginia and the governor. They're monitoring these things closely because they know if something were to break, if something were to happen, they're going to fill the gap. They're going to stand in the gap. They're going to defend because they know that, well, law enforcement isn't defending any of the citizens who are out there at the Antifa rallies. The Proud Boys uh, are the ones having to do it. The governors of those states or the mayors, like they did here in Charlottesville, you know, in Northern Virginia, they just looked the other way. Governor McAuliffe, back when he was governor of Virginia, told the state troopers to stand down. So who then stands up? You know, the militia is something under the Constitution that we can do as citizens. It's not something that has to be deemed by the government. It's not something that has to be organized or well-regulated. The well-regulated part meant that you were well-regulating your operations of weapons. It wasn't that they needed to regulate, as far as legislation, an army, a navy. So it's going to be interesting to see. Veterans are ready, <laughs> and they will stand up because they have all said, I took an oath to stand up for the Constitution of the United States. And the part that they stress the most is the part that comes after. From, 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 from threats, from foreign and domestic threats. And so they're looking at these situations as domestic threats. They're looking at a bureaucracy that's looking to spy on its citizen, you know, somebody that's running for public office like President Trump, so that they can eventually get Congress to toss him out and throw him out of office. That can be seen as a domestic threat. So we're going to keep watching this situation in Virginia. And on the other side of the break, I'm going to give you a Christmas segment. This is Adrian Slade. The Adrian Slade Broadcast. So the Christmas season is upon us. And one of the gifts that we are given is the gift that Donald Trump brought. And that is the gift to watch people lose their rational minds just because of their collective sites, their collective crew, their tribe. I mean, the level that people go to basically sacrifice their own values and their own 
their own beliefs just because they don't like President Trump. It's unfathomable. And the case that I saw recently was related to Claremont University Methodist Church in California. Now, I'm not going to get ultrally biblical, but there's going to be some biblical things being talked about. So just keep that in mind. And the reason for that is because the Claremont United Methodist Church has a nativity display. And basically what this nativity display is, Mary is in a cage. Jesus is in a separate cage. Next to him is Joseph in a cage. So basically, the idea is if we're separating kids at the border and putting them in cages, then let's take a modern or let's take a, a prominent, you know, a prominent scene, the nativity scene coming up on Christmas time and show our outrage over what's happening at the border with detention and release and vetting of individuals coming across and being detained. Let's turn that into a nativity scene. So a church is going to make a political statement using the nativity scene. Now this guy, Anthony Brezikin, he's with Vanity Fair. He's a Vanity Fair correspondent. He actually put a tweet thread about this. I saw this in Mashable, and I wasn't going to get too heavy into talking about this until I saw this thread. And then I kind of felt like, you know what? I'm being led to talk about this. And so he said, Karen Clark Ristine, a senior minister at the church, shared the, mess the image on Facebook with this message. I wish everyone in the United States would read this for the Christmas season. Now, Karen Clark Ristine put this on her page. Stirred to tears by the Claremont UMC nativity inside the church, the Holy Family is reunited. The theological statement posted with the nativity in a time in our country when refugee families seek asylum at our borders and are unwillingly separated from one another, we consider the most well-known refugee family in the world, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, the Holy Family. Shortly after the birth of Jesus, Joseph and Mary were forced to flee with their young son from Nazareth to Egypt to escape King Herod, a tyrant. They feared persecution and death. What if this family sought refuge in our country? What if they did that today? Imagine Joseph and Mary separated at the border and Jesus, no older than two, taken from his mother, placed behind the fence of a border patrol detention center as more than 5,500 children have in the past three years. And then he goes on, Anthony goes on to say, the comments are filling up with MAGA rage. I'm sorry for the souls of these people. I love the nativity story. I love it not because it's warm and fuzzy, but because it's about perseverance against cruelty. No one saves them. The child is born in squalor, hiding among animals. He rests in a manger, which is not a hay-stuffed crib, but a feeding trough. The monster of the nativity story is not King Herod, the bloodthirsty tyrant. He is just the backdrop. The villain is the innkeeper, a common everyday person who sees the dire situation and chooses not to help. No room. Sorry. America is full of innkeepers these days. The stable was not the pristine, rustic structure we see in the displays. It was the equivalent of being born in an alley beside a dumpster. 
Who shows them kindness? The shepherds. Other poor, dirty, desperate people. They have nothing but help anyway, even though they're afraid. Then the wise men come from afar. Others call them three kings. I always thought of them not as professors or prophets, but simply people who saw the situation with clear eyes, with wisdom, who had empathy, who wanted to help even though they were from somewhere else. It's a beautiful story rendered more beautiful by Claremont United Methodist Church for making us see how clearly it is today. Who will help? Who will turn away? How do we open the eyes of the innkeepers, especially when seeing something like this only infuriates them? To which my friend Susan said, was this the church display under Obama as well, or is this selective virtue signaling? <laughs> now, this guy is completely off the mark. I mean, to, to sit there and make the point that the innkeeper is the villain and the bloodthirsty King Herod is just a backdrop. He misses the entire point of the nativity. The villain wasn't the innkeeper, gang. The villain was us, humans. Fallen, sinful beings. The Savior was born in the manger because he was the sacrificial lamb. You know, one thing people don't realize when we talk about the shepherds, he looked at the shepherds as these low-class, dirty, you know, people out there watching their sheep, watching their lambs. Guess what? In that section where the inn was, <laughs> the manger was, that section those shepherds were actually raising lambs, sacrificial lambs without blemish. They had to be the most perfect lamb. They were inspected by Levite priest to make sure that there is no blemish so that they could be sacrificed for the sins that were committed. And the importance of the manger is because he, the sacrificial lamb of all time, <laughs> the sacrificial lamb, Christ, was born in that manger. I mean, they, you know, the, the shepherds were watching over the lambs who were being readied for sacrifice. And then in that specific location, Christ, the ultimate sacrifice, was born. The lamb that John the Baptist, who was from the line of Levite priest who saw Jesus years later, John the Baptist, his cousin, sees, sees Christ later and points to him and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes the sins of all beings, of all people. I mean, and that's right before John the Baptist baptizes Jesus. You know, Mary and Joseph weren't migrants. They were being forced to be a part of the first census, which, you know, if you want to get biblical, that was a God thing. The fact that they had to have the census, the fact that they were summoned to go to that area, the fact that they landed in that area at the time that Jesus was born, that's all coming together. Prophecy all coming together. And for a church, like a Methodist church, to use this as some sort of political tool to, to basically throw shade at the border, at the ICE agents, is just ridiculous. 
I mean, it's completely egregious. I mean, they don't understand their biblical, uh, you know, their biblical founding, their biblical principles, obviously, because that's their take. Uh, you know, it's amazing to me, and that's California. It's amazing when you find out the level of the infection of various leftist groups into Christian organizations. George Soros actually has a hand in some of that. But what they're trying to do, and they've been trying to do this with the Catholic Church, especially through the Pope for ages, is to get the church to capitulate to whatever progressive agenda item that they push in order to be able to further progressivism. That's why they go to the, they go to the Pope for everything. Climate change, you know, abortion. I mean, that's, that's what their modus operandi is, is to get what they want to do with the Constitution to say whatever they want it to say. You know, the Constitution's this living document, right? That's what they always say. So that means it can be changed and molded and shaped all the time. Which really, the process for a constitutional amendment or a change to it is so ridiculously tedious and difficult that it better be daggone, you know, sound. It better be something the entire population of the United States somewhat is pushing for because the process is going to weed itself out, whether or not it's some fly-by-night seat of her pants change to the Constitution. Same thing with what they're trying to do with the Pope. They want the Pope to be the living document, to get out there and say, well, Jesus uh, is fine with gay marriage, and Jesus is fine with you. You must be punished for climate change because this is the earth that Jesus built. You know, this is the creation that God made. All that kind of craziness. And you got people like Nancy Pelosi out there talking about her Christian faith, her Catholic faith, and Pete Buttigieg out there talking about his Christian faith as he's married to a guy and he is a Methodist. So obviously the Methodist church has an issue and it's had an issue for a while, but there's actually a schism going on within the Methodist church, but it's over things like this. It's over things like pushing political leftist agenda items and trying to make the Bible say what you want it to say as opposed to what it actually says. So the takes like this from people who obviously don't understand the real story of the birth of Christ, like this Vanity Fair correspondent and the church that put this stupid ruse together, this dumb nativity of caged baby Jesus, they need to be checked. They need to be told um, what you're doing is politicizing something that should not be politicized and that there's more meaning behind the birth of Christ than what this church is displaying in their caged up border security nativity. So what do you get for the guy who has everything? You get him the gift of impeachment. That's right. At time of this recording, impeachment is going to happen later this evening. And some of the pre votes kind of seem like it's going to go that way, which is really disgusting. If you think about it, this is like the nuclear option. You know, this is something that, Mitch McConnell warned Harry Reid, don't do it, because once you open up this Pandora's box, it can be used against you. So if you're going to sit there and have a partisan attack on a president using the means of congressional power, obstruction of Congress? 
You mean you're basically going to remove or, or attempt to remove, because they got to go through the Senate, a president because his executive branch powers are being utilized in a way that they don't like, so they're going to use the legislative branch powers to destroy him just because they don't like him politically? If you're going to use that and ruin you know, the traditions and the processes and uh, the reverence, if you're going to destroy the reverence for constitutionality, then there's no more hope. I mean, the Republic is done. It's not, you know, they're out there saying, oh, well, it's a solemn time and we must uphold the Constitution and we're praying about, you don't care about the Constitution. You wouldn't be doing this if you did. What you're doing is ultra anti-constitutional in nature. But if you're going to abuse those prospects, at least put a bow on it and make it something fun. So there was a little story from the Oversight Committee of Republicans for this Yuletide season, the season of impeachment. Twas the night before impeachment and all through the House, Pelosi chased vulnerable Democrats like a cat after a mouse. The articles were sent to Capitol Hill without care and put before all members after a process far from fair. The Democrats were restless, not snug in their beds, while nightmares of November danced in their heads. And the whole country knew, for four facts be true, Pelosi looked away, but not Jeff Vandrew. When, what to my wondering eyes should I see? but the coastal impeachment squad with hearts full of glee. Away to the cameras, Democrats flew in a dash. They couldn't resist impeaching the president despite the backlash. Pelosi sprung from her chair and to her team gave the okay. And weary Democrats knew they had to obey. Oh, on Swalwell, on Lockfern, on Jackson Lee. I know you'll vote yes on impeachment. You always follow me. And I heard her exclaim as they walked off the floor, Merry impeachment to all. Now voters, we'll show you the door. Basically summed it up. You know, there's a thing we have to worry about when we get into the Senate side. I'm hearing that Mitch McConnell doesn't want to bring on witnesses, doesn't want to bring on hearings. It's just going to be straight up and down vote. The thing you have to worry about is the never Trumpers. Yeah, the, the GOP has the high ground in the majority, but does that give them the opportunity to do what they've always wanted to do? Eliminate the problem known as Trump, regain the establishment of the GOP, regain the power of the GOP. You've got people like Mitt Romney in there ready to throw Trump under the bus. I mean, luckily, Ben Sass has been reasonable. He came around and... In fact, let's listen to a little bit of Ben Sass. Uh, Mr. Horwitz, thank you for being here and to all of your team. You've done important work, so thank you to all of you and the rows one and two as well. Um, there's, there are a number of things that are really troubling, but some of them have been unpacked pretty fully so far, so I'm going to pick up some loose ends. Mm -hmm. um, Bruce Orr, yep. 
who is he and what's his role at the department? And then let's ask some questions about the bizarre pathway by which he became involved in this investigation. So at the time of these events, he was an associate deputy attorney general and the head of the Organized Crime Drug Enforcement Task Force working out of the deputy attorney general's office. The Organized Crime and Drug Enforcement Task Force. And that's Correct. connected to election interference by the Russians how? Uh, it is not. What the hell's he doing here? That was precisely the concern which is, that we lay out here. Um, he had no role um, in any of the election interference matters. Um, we have a bunch of people in the media who wanted to read this as a Rorschach test, and they wanted to have a predetermined answer for exactly how to interpret each piece of this. And so as the chairman began today, he said, you know, uh, predicate of investigation, appropriate, but some minor mistakes and errors were made. You've outlined in this 478 or 434, depending on whether we count all the Roman numerals, uh, page report, 17 significant errors in this investigation. Um, Bruce Orr, who has a very significant senior role, ODAG, for those who don't know, the Office of the Deputy Attorney General, has primary oversight of all law enforcement agencies in America. So if you're in the FBI and you might make a mistake in your investigation, the people you'd be in trouble with normally are in the Deputy Attorney General's office. And here's a guy in the Deputy Attorney General's office who ultimately gets involved, inserts himself into this investigation. And I think it's pretty important to recognize we've got a massive cultural systemic failure. If a guy from ODAG who should be doing oversight of this case, if he weren't off on another assignment about organized crime and drug trafficking, um, if he were going to get involved in this, he should be checking the work of the people who were doing the work. And there are a whole bunch of department protocols and provisions that were violated throughout this. So that's Ben Sass grilling IG Horowitz over his report. So we kind of get an idea that he knows that this is all bunk. So I imagine that that is one person who was considered never Trump, who has probably been swayed in the opposite direction. Now, I like Ben Sass. I've gone back and forth on whether I like him a lot because sometimes he does things that I go, ah, I really don't buy what you're doing. I don't get why you're doing what you're doing. And then other times he gets up and makes impassioned arguments for conservatism that I go, that's just amazing. The guy nailed it. So I think he's seen the light of day, similar to the individuals who I fall in line with, more of the Mike Lee's, Ted Cruz kind of individuals. Listen to him talk about Mike Lee, and he kind of apologizes to Mike Lee for his takes on on surveillance and, and the Department of Justice and the FBI, because I think a lot of people on the never Trump commentator side still believe that this whole thing was a hoax and that the, the FBI and the DOJ and the NSA, they would never do anything bad. But listen to Ben Sass basically apologizing to Mike Lee. I wish Mike Lee weren't sitting here two people away from me right now because as a national security hawk, I have argued with Mike Lee in the four and a half or five years that I've been in the Senate that stuff just like this couldn't possibly happen at the FBI and at the Department of Justice. So as somebody who is embarrassed on behalf of the FBI about your report, because I believe that it is critically important that we have the FISA statute. I think the FISC is an incredibly important court. The approval rating of 
of applications that come before the FISC are off the charts. I don't know the current numbers, but a couple of years ago when I saw them, I think it was 97.9 percent. Is that is that a fair? I think it was the last number I saw was roughly 98 percent. Okay, so a 98 percent approval rating of applications that come before the FISC. Why would it be that high? People would normally say, and I'm, I'm not asking you to answer that. I'm saying that the good answer is in an ex parte, I'm not an attorney, but an ex parte proceeding before the court, when you, the American citizen who might be being surveilled or be suspected of something that would open a surveillance uh, warrant against you, the assumption would be if you can't be there to defend yourself, it's because the department's lawyers are so super scrupulous that if there's any information that might exonerate you or that might counteract the view that led them to first pursue a theory of the case that had them wanting to surveil you, they would say the bar is so high here, we'll always err on the side of privacy unless we believe there's a good reason to pursue this investigation. And so Mike Lee has warned me for four and a half years, the potential for abuse in this space is terrible, and I constantly defended the integrity and the professionalism of the Bureau and of the department that you couldn't have something like this happen. See, Ben, ben Sass gets it now. If you ever thought that the government could not use these things against its own citizens because of the fact that they would have standards and they would the left doesn't have standards. The left doesn't revere the Constitution. They play about it. They they play the part and they they always talk like, oh, we're so constitutional. Then why are you trying to gut the Second Amendment? Why are you trying to eliminate the Electoral College? Why are you weaponizing the FBI, the DOJ, the NSA on its own citizens, including a private citizen running for public office? So when they take this to the Senate, I can't really feel confident that the GOP, who hasn't had a spine in ages, isn't going to fail at this one too. And let the left steamroll them with the Constitution in their hand, beating them over the head with it like it was some sort of dog toy and just defecating all over the Constitution. I can't feel confident that that is not going to end up being the result of something that happens in the Senate removing somebody from office. So we're just going to have to see how this goes. But I'm hoping that they just bat it down, just shut the whole thing down in the Senate, and then we get on with the election, which is probably going to be a heck of a landslide for somebody like President Trump after a situation such as this. Now, before we get out of here, got a little bit of an update. Now, Paul Manafort, who actually had a cardiac arrest the other day, you know, he was put into Rikers Island, the former Trump campaign aide who had questionable things in Ukraine, which we talked about quite a bit. We knew he had serious, questionable issues in Ukraine. And I've always wondered where he was, uh, if he was pushed into the Trump orbit so that they could build this whole thing because he worked with Tony Podesta. Tony Podesta walks free. But Paul Manafort, who probably knows everything that's on the backside of why they spied all over Trump and what they what the left is trying to cover up, um, maybe he was pushed in there for those purposes, to be a spoil, to be somebody who can dirty Trump up. But a judge, a New York judge, just tossed state fraud case against Paul Manafort. Judge Maxwell Riley ruled that the charges, which mirrored some of those brought by special counsel Robert Mueller, violated the state's double jeopardy laws. So they're tossing out those um, 
that this entire case, the New York judge tossed the real estate fraud case brought by Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance against Paul Manafort, ruling that the charges violated the state's double jeopardy laws. Vance's office accuses Manafort, President Trump's former campaign chairman, of falsifying business records to obtain millions of dollars in residential mortgage loans in a scam that began in December 2015 and continued until three days before the Trump inauguration. That's all they can really get on Paul Manafort. So realize the Mueller investigation didn't yield uh, indictments on Manafort, didn't didn't result in an indictment on Mike Flynn because he, he was lying to FBI is what they got him on. George Papadopoulos, they threw him in jail for like a week because they said, oh, he lied too. So they're at least tossing out these things on Paul Manafort. Let's see where that goes. Everything is still up in the air. <laughs> but um, I just want to leave you with a couple things. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Thanks for listening to the podcast. You know, I do this out of love. I don't do this out of uh, any sort of financial obligation. I'm not getting something out of this. I do it because I really enjoy politics. I enjoy broadcasting and I enjoy connecting with you guys. So get on over to Twitter and uh, chat with me or chat with me on Facebook, Parler. Uh, I was it Cloud Hub, Cloud Hub as well. I may be doing an interview with uh, Jeff from Cloud Hub. He is the CEO. So look forward to that into the 2020 year. And this will be the last podcast until the beginning of January. We got some great Exciting things coming up in the works down the road. So stick with us. And we really uh, enjoy you guys being a part of the Adrian Slade family. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. I'm Adrian Slade. Thanks for tuning into the show. Listen to us on Mojo 50 Radio. You can find that on iHeartRadio or go to Mojo50.com every Wednesday, 10 p.m. Also, get the podcast, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Spreaker, TuneIn, iHeart, Overcast, wherever podcasts are hosted, and be sure to give us a review. Give us a good five-star review that's going to help us go up in the ratings so we're more visible to others. You can also donate to the show. Go to patreon.com slash Show. Give $2 a month or go to anchor.fm and search Adrian Slade. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Gab, MeWe, Parler, Convo, Snippy, search Adrian Slade. Follow us on Twitter at Rants Out Loud or at Adrian Slade Show, which is the official show page on Twitter. And you can also read the blog, AdrianSladeShow.com. You can also get the Adrian Slade Show Roku channel in your streaming store on the Roku streaming channel store. Be sure to download the Adrian Slade Show Roku channel. We'll see you guys next time. Thanks for tuning in.